Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Good morning. Look at all these people who are up bright and early because of a fantastic time change. We appreciate you being here this morning. It's good to see you. Uh, For today's sermon, I wanted to start with a quote. It's going to make some of you cringe a little bit here. It's from a, a, a book by Edward John Carnell. He wrote in 1967 called Christian Commitment. Here's what he says. He says, suppose a husband asks his wife if he must kiss her goodnight. Her answer is you must, but not that kind of must. What she means is this. Unless a spontaneous affection for my person motivates you, your overtures are stripped of all their moral value. If you're a couple, I'm sure you cringed a little bit at that idea of looking at your significant other and saying, do I have to kiss you? I I mean, you know that conversation's not going to go well (laughs) the moment it starts. And yet that that idea behind it is something that we often kind of just want to know. Do I really need to do these things? In fact, this this idea is hinting at something that we've talked about quite a bit throughout Romans, Uh, this idea that we as sinful people want to run back to the law again and again. You know, we want someone to give us a list, a checkbox, a way to prove that we are doing the right things. You know, in this case, it'd be to prove that you're being a good spouse so that your spouse couldn't be frustrated with you because you did what they asked you to do. So you checked the box and now they should be happy and pleased. You know, for all of us in every sphere of life, it comes back to this, this idea, this problem that, that we, even though we know that our hope is only in Jesus, in his righteous life for our life, his death for us, his resurrection and power that we might be raised in power both in this life, but also in the new heavens and the new earth to come, we still have this inclination, this selfishness really, to want to run back to the law to prove that we are good enough, that we should deserve whatever we're getting. And we've talked about how throughout Romans, again and again, Paul turns to help us see that that it's not about coming back to the law in that way. Rather, it's about coming back to relationship with God and with others. That that's where the real outworking of our faith occurs, is in that love and relationship. And he talks about how we should be coming back to this idea of the life of the Spirit. This is what he said in Romans 7. He told us this, he says, likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You know, life in the Spirit is what we're called to live in. It looks like loving one another and loving God. It's how we press into relationship, not into rules. You know, Paul reminded us as well in Romans 13. He said this, he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love reminds us, again, whether it's with God or with others, to not view 
our, our world as rules and making the law our savior, but rather it pushes us again back to relationship. It, it's what keeps us from asking that question, must I? It compels us internally. And, and if you're like me, you maybe feel a bit of a paradox here. You know uh, that there's a tension here. If you think about it with like a good artist, you know a good artist studies art, practices art, continues to hone their skill and craft and yet you also know on the other side that that real artistic genius just kind of unfolds like a flower in the dawn. Uh, there's these two sides to the equation that are constantly there, and that's true in our Christian life as well. You know, We know that we will never truly love God nor live our life for his glory rightly if we don't consciously try. And yet, because we keep striving for it and we fail, we know that without God moving inside of us and changing us, doing what only he can do, it will never be accomplished in us. And when we see tensions like that in life, especially when we see it in scripture, they're usually there to remind us to push into both sides, to push into both the side that would say, I need to work. I want to strive to know God. I want to pray to him. I want to look to his word. I want him to grow me in the ways that I live. And when I fail, I want to come back to the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, trusting that what he has done has been sufficient for me. And I want to ask God to do what he can only do, which is change my heart change my mind, change my affections, that I might actually want to do these things, be compelled internally, that my desire would be for God's own heart, and that it might spring forth more naturally from me. You know, this morning in this sermon and in the next two sermons, I want us to try to step into that tension together. How do we stand and examine both sides of those issues in our lives as Christians and see what God would have come out of it. You know, having just read Romans 1 through 8, in fact, all of Romans, and having a chance to remember the beauty of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, what that's looked like in our lives, and how much he has loved us, we don't want to walk away and assume that we will have, it will have the right effect on our hearts. We want to talk and think about what would look different in my life, what would be different in, in how I live at a high level, if I truly treasured the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. You know, over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about three different aspects of our life from a high level as Christians that should be changed when we come to the beauty of knowing who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. And there are undoubtedly many more areas of our life that would be changed, but these are three high level ones. And they are about how our life should be different in how we worship and how we gather and how we witness that the gospel should change us in how we worship and how we gather and how we witness. I mean, first and foremost, we should be moved to worship God. When we hear the beauty of the gospel, it should move us to worship. Second, out of that worship and out of that knowledge should become a desire to gather with the very people of God, our new family, our new household, as it were. And third, we should, be, we should feel compelled to witness both to one another to share the beauty of what God has done for us and also to those who don't yet treasure the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each of these should spring forth out of our knowing of God and knowing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And, for, and that's what I'm praying we work through over these next three sermons today and two more. I'm praying that both sides of these tensions are raised in your minds through these talks. Right? I pray that by looking at each of these aspects, 
that our lives would be markedly different because of what the gospel of Jesus Christ has done, both in how we can strive to practice a life that exemplifies that and how we can look to a God to change us internally. You know, more importantly, it's this, this internal area that these affections that we want to have that would love God and others in a way that compel us from j- deep joy and love. In fact, my prayer is that in all these areas of our life, it would become for us more like a mother or a father who sees their child in the middle of a street and a car barreling down on them, and they don't think twice. They run, they grab, and they scoop them up. That all these aspects of living a Christian life would not be something we have to think twice about, but rather it just becomes second nature, something that's just compelling within us to move down that road, and that we find that we must do these things, but not that kind of must. Right? The kind of must that compels inwardly, not the kind of must that compels outwardly. So would you pray with me this morning as we jump into these three topics? Father God, you are the God who's called us to walk this tension, to rightly use our minds, our hearts, our souls, uh, to, to seek you, to walk in your ways. And Lord God, we know as wicked, sinful people who know more inside of our own minds, our own sinfulness and our need for you, and your beauty in the cross. Lord God, would you change us? We need you to do that. So Lord God, would you use our looking at your scripture over these next three weeks, Lord, in these three areas of how we worship, how we gather, and how we witness. Lord God, to rouse both our affections and our actions. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're going to start this week with this idea of worship. The real question becomes, what is worship? I'm sure if I asked all of us, we could start coming up with a definition, and it would largely start with the idea of what we do. Annie did a great job this morning pushing us away from that that idea, but that's where we normally think and start. We start with, hey, it's the beginning of the church services, the first two songs, and then maybe the last three songs. That's what worship looks like. Maybe it has a hand raised, maybe two hands if you're really charismatic, right? We have different actions that we think about. But our goal this morning and through this sermon is to see this about worship, to see that worship is our response in attention, affection, and actions that rightly know, treasure, and joy, and are satisfied in God through Christ Jesus. All right, worship is our response in attention, affections, and actions that rightly know, tre- treasure, and joy, and are satisfied in God through Christ Jesus. All of creation exists to worship God. You know, Paul told us in Romans 1 through 2 that, that all of creation is for the glory of God. And in that sense, that means it worships him. We see that idea again and again throughout Scripture. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The trees and the forest sing for joy. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. The meadows and the valleys shout and sing together for joy. Sing, O heavens, shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it, for the Lord will be glorified in Israel. I mean, even you and I, we were created for worship, for praise of God. Listen to how Paul says it in Ephesians 1. He says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So everything that he's ever done through all of time and all ways, so that we, me and you friends, in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That through what he did in Christ, we might praise him through our very being in nature and with our voices, of course. Again and again, scripture says that we are called to praise God, to make much of his glory, his very nature. 
that God would be known and seen amongst all the people as marvelous, as merciful, as magnanimous. You know, like Paul said in Romans 11 that we just read, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All things, all of creation, me and you, all of his people are that he might be praised, that he might be seen as glorious, to glory in who he is and what he does. He alone deserves that. And he is the only being who is not narcissistic to do that. He is by definition, beauty, good, love, and joy. He would be selfish not to invite us, to draw us into himself, to find what we've all been looking for in all those different arenas in our life. And when we look at this definition, we can see that there are two main aspects to it. And we see those same aspects throughout scripture. And there are two sides of a coin, as it were, one without the other, and we don't really have worship. You know, there's a deficit in our worship and our glory to God when we, when we give him worship without one side or the other. The first side, actions, is the side that we all think about and I probably don't have to convince you too much about. It's exemplified in Romans 12.1 where Paul said this to us. He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Again, I probably don't have to convince you that we all think about worship, but we think about what am I going to go do? I'm going to have to have some sort of action. But what I want us to think about more this morning and to lay the groundwork for, for how worship works is this internal idea, this idea of our affections and our attention, where that is turned to in our life. And I want to do that by starting with, with the story of the woman at the well. This is John 4.4, 4, and it starts like this. It says, so Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealing with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, many of you have probably heard this story and heard so much of the background of this. The Samaritans were a mixed people. They started out as Israelites who intermarried with the foreigners around them and in doing so kind of became outcasts. So much so that they, they began to develop their own version of Judaism, their own version of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They even created their own place to worship that they would see themselves as very distinct from, from Jews. And that became such a, a hot, contested issue. They, they really hated each other. Uh, there was no love loss here. In fact, that's why the, the parable of the Good Samaritan stopping to help the, the hurt Jewish person was so remarkable. It's also part of the background of what's so remarkable in this story as well. I mean, for Jesus to even talk to this woman was culturally taboo. He should have done it. She shouldn't have responded. It shouldn't have happened. They both knew that was happening. Yet Jesus is so desirous that she would know the good news. And here we see even here a glimpse of the gospel beginning to go to the Gentiles, even in Jesus's life. He's sitting there with her, so wanting her to come to himself that he tries to entice her to realize that she has a need. And the woman says back to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. 
Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. I mean, this is a complete like, she missed it. She did not hear at all what Jesus was trying to get her to realize. And as she's hearing water, she's thinking living water. She's in this well. Now, again, think wells that you have to walk down in a circle to get down into. We're not talking just like bring a little bucket down into it. So when she says a bucket, she's thinking scoop it up from the bottom of the well and carry it up. If Jesus had even tried that with his hands, he wouldn't have even had any water left by the time he got to the top. She's like, where is this coming from? There's no way that you have any way to give that to me. So Jesus tries again. Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Again, he's trying to get her to see that the issue isn't water, that there's, there's a deep need she has within her. And again, she misses it. She's thinking, I don't want to have to come back to the well. Why don't you give me some water? If I have this great water that multiplies, I'm never thirsty again. Why not? I will take that. And so here's a side note to our, our, our thing this morning, because I think it's worth noting here. Notice how Jesus connects with her. In the midst of her missing, in the midst of her not understanding what he's trying to say, he enters in through a wound. I would encourage you to think that that's so often how Jesus approaches me and you. We are whiffing it often. We are missing so often what Jesus wants to say to us. And like a good surgeon, Jesus enters in through a wound that we might realize that's exactly the kind of thing he wants to deal with in our life. That's where he goes here. He says to this woman, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus went to this place of hurt and shame to show her how deeply he wanted to connect with her, how much what he had to offer would solve some of her deepest hurts and desires in her life. And yet she does what so many of us do when Jesus begins to try to engage us this way. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She deflects. She avoids. She attacks it intellectually without feeling it. In fact, what she's basically saying to Jesus is, you know what, you're right, I'm adulterous, I'm an adulteress. Hey, where do you think we should worship? What an awkward conversation. That would be so weird if someone did that with you. She tries to avoid the conversation that Jesus is trying to have and really get down to the deep issues of her heart. And I would venture to say that's what many of us do when we have conversations with Jesus as well, about the deep issues in our life, that we try to make an intellectual discussion to avoid the emotional issue. And ultimately, as we're going to see this morning, that's getting into the issue of worship. Jesus is trying to get to the real place of worship, and we want to make it something else. She wants to talk about worship from an external perspective without dealing with it internally. What would it really mean to her to worship Jesus? She asks, where do I go to worship God? She wants to know the place, the action, the way it would look like externally. If Jesus was a man of God, she assumes he could point her to where to go, what it should look like, what kind of song they should play, if they should raise one hand or two. And that's where Jesus gets to the point of worship this morning that I want us to see here. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. 
We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The pairing Jesus gives to this woman here is this, spirit and truth, not body and spirit, not truth and body, spirit and truth. He's saying, I want your attention. I want your affections. I want them to be pointed towards me. And whether or not we view this in this section as the Holy Spirit or just our spirit, both are basically saying the same thing. Jesus is telling this woman that what is more important to God than where we worship him is that we worship him from an internal compulsion. And he says that it should come through our spirit, through our heart and our affections, and that it should come through truth, our knowing, our attention on him. Jesus is not discounting that that our our worship will have very real outworkings, ways that it happens, that that we can go and do it, yet he's, he's more concerned about what's going on in our hearts. You know, Hebrews 13, 15 brings these two together really well. This is what it says. Through him, Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We see here both parts of this idea. The author of Hebrews is using the Old Testament imagery of sacrifices. He's speaking to the Hebrews, to the Jews. And he starts where Jesus starts with this, with this idea of praise to God, that is, fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. This is the attention, the affection that the writers of Scripture, that Paul, the writer of Hebrews, are all talking about. Praise that is a fruit that comes within that acknowledges Jesus' name and all that he's done for us, that blossoms out of us as an evidence of something that is going on internally. Jesus talks about this in a negative perspective in Matthew 15. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. He says that the heart is missing for so many of the Jewish leaders and people of his day. And perhaps that's true for us as well. And because of that, he says their, their worship is vain. Vain in this sense means worthless, nothing. And their outward actions without inward heart makes worth, worship worthless. And there's no credit for worship without a right heart. And we ultimately want to be like the Samaritan woman who ended her conversation with Jesus this way. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. We want to let God, through Jesus Christ, show us himself. Draw us to who he really is, that our attention and our affections might be raised. And that's how we end up at the end of Hebrews 13, 15, and 16, rightly walking it out in our actions. Where we get to this, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This morning, this is just going to be a taste of of how we get there, how how we get to this place where our attention and our affections are raised, that our actions might be walked out rightly so that we don't worry about getting them backwards. We don't start with the actions and just go to affections, thinking that that can happen. Practically speaking, this all starts somewhere where you might not have thought it starts. 
It starts with God's joy. God's joy and his joy and making his joy our joy. That sounds confusing, so we'll say it simpler. It starts with God's joy for our joy. That's what is going on here with worship. God is wanting to bring us into his joy. You may not have thought about this much, but God has always been infinitely joyful in the Trinity. He's never been alone, never lacked for love, never lacked for someone to show love to. He created us and this world not out of a lack, but out of an overflow. It was out of the overflow of his love and joy, which is how all love and joy should work. It should be coming out of an overflow. It flows and overflows outwardly. You know, God and Jesus Christ is drawing us back into relationship with himself and in this Trinity. He wants us to know himself fully. And there's this beautiful picture that some of the church fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus was one of them, and that even the Eastern Orthodox Church still has today, this picture that the Trinity is in a dance, that it's dancing beautifully with itself, partnering back and forth and, and, and elevating itself through that dance. And that's what God is inviting us into in relationship with him. Think about how Jesus says this in John 17, 21. It sounds like a dance. I do not ask for these only, meaning just these disciples that he has, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may also be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given to me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, and they, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus is inviting us into this, this relationship. God is pulling us in through Jesus Christ in this dance. And as we draw into relationship in God's joy and see his joy more fully, we realize that we have a God who is joyful in himself and is completely pleased with all of his choices and all that he does. This is what he says in Isaiah 46. He says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God is inviting us into the joy that he has in doing exactly what he wants to do. And he wants us to find that exceedingly joyful with him. He wants us to be pleased with him, to be able to say like the psalmist says in Psalm 135, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth winds from his storehouse. God wants us to know him as this kind of God, fully joyful in and of himself, that that joy and love might overflow from us. And it's when we begin to realize that kind of relationship that God is bringing us into with himself, that we kind of see the, the first steps of what it looks like to internally worship God. We start with this idea that to internal, internally worship God means that we worship him in truth. It may seem silly to you, but when you think about it, we oftentimes worship a God that's not really God. To the degree that we don't know and understand who God is, we are worshiping an idol that we find most pleasing to ourselves. 
We worship a God who's comfortable, but not necessarily true. That's why internally our first act of worship is to worship our God in truth, to truly know who he is. And that's why it matters so much to us that our scripture is fully God-breathed and inspired, that it reveals to us exactly who he is. Otherwise, we couldn't trust that we could know him. You know, as one scholar has said, true worship is based on a right understanding of God's nature, and it is a right valuing of God's worth. Only Scripture can reveal to us the truth of who God is and what He's done, and we see that most fully in Jesus Christ. The one who we see all of heavens declaring in Revelation 5 is the Lamb who is worthy to take the scroll. He's the one who embodies truth. We don't think about that often. We talk a lot about Jesus embodying grace and love, but listen to what John says in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace, which we talk about all the time, and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We start our our journey of internal worship of God in truth, of knowing who he really is as we see him in Jesus Christ in the beauty of what he's done for us. And then that leads to our second and third points of what it looks like to worship internally. We root that type of worship in the essentials of who God is, and then we exult. We are exceedingly joyful in the particularities of how that of what we see in God as we move further and further in Scripture. As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 3, we start with spiritual milk, and then we move on to meat, (laughs) right? We We want to start with the broadest understandings of who Jesus is. That's why we have a partner affirmation here at Rev 22. This beauty of the breadth of the people that we want to partner with here, that we might all worship God together. These are the essentials of the truth and love that we want to see others love. They're the core and necessary issues of faith. But we all don't want to stop there. We don't want to stop at just the core issues. We want to continue to press in to know God as best we can, as much as it were we could, as finite beings understand our infinitely glorious God. We want to try, as Paul says, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you, that you and I, may be filled with all the fullness of God. We want to know the fullness of God as much as it is possible, that we might find our joy and love rising, that worship might be compelled within us, and ultimately that it brings us this fourth thing of our internal worship of God, that we would worship with deep abiding joy and trust in God only as we see God in more and more particularities, how God works himself in our lives through our friendships, through our jobs, through our sorrows, through our joys, that we begin to see it build within us a deep abiding joy for God, and that we find ourselves trusting him and the goodness that he has for us, the love that he has, and the fact that he has dealt for everything for us in Jesus Christ. You know, we realize that this is not about us working to please 
God, but rather falling into his ever-smiling joy and grace and find in ourselves a similar joy and trust for God. If this is what internal worship looks like, you might be surprised to find where external worship then starts. In external worship, we start to worship where God has us. You know, if, if Jesus could give God glory in the Garden of Gethsemane, if David could write psalms of praise to God in caves avoiding Saul and his armies, if Paul could give praise to God from prison, then we can worship God wherever he has us. Whether it's praise for his provision, whether it's waiting in our woundedness, we can all worship God in each situation that he has given us. We can worship him just as well through corporate worship with guitars and drums as well as we can in a hospital bed dying of cancer in trust and faith to our God. And that leads to the second way that we can externally worship God. We worship him in our diversity. The diversity of situations and places that we see God place us leads us to value in general the beauty of the diversity of who we are in the chance that we have to worship God. Unique voices, talents, gifts that act like a multifaceted gem radiating the beauty of God in worship to him. You know, one of your main acts of worship, one of my main acts of worship is to use the life that God has given me, the talents and the time that he might receive glory in all spheres. And for many of us, that's in our work day. That's with our family. That's with our neighbors. This can all be worship as we do it for the glory and the praise of God. I had a pastor friend tell me once that he had a, a student come to him, a college student who was super nervous about a test. And of course, this pastor friend was a, a worship pastor. And so he, he, he prayed with this young man and said, I pray that tomorrow as you're taking this test, it will be a worshipful experience. He's like, and you have to come back and tell me if it was. So the, the kid came back a couple of days later. He says, it was. He's like, I was taking the test and I got the first question. I'm like, oh, I know that one. I write it down. First thing that came to mind was, I know that because God kept it there. I know that because God. Second question, I know that one too. Even more worship. And he found that the worship that he had in that test was greater than any of the, the difficulties that he had in the one or two that he didn't know. There was like 90 something that he did know. It was a worshipful experience that God was working through him. So kids, even taking tests at school can be a worshipful experience. And we should be thankful to God that our external worship doesn't always look identical. I want to encourage you, don't pray to God that he would make you just like the singer on the stage or the guitar player on the stage. Rather, that God would help you to see the uniqueness that he has placed in you, that you might fully worship him exactly where he's put you. He has given each of us unique lives, unique gifts and talents that he might get the praise and glory because of what he's doing in us and through us. And finally, we get to this idea of how we worship through singing. The idea that everyone expects has to be connected, and of course it is. We see places like this in Ephesians 5, that we should be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in our heart, giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Worship is definitely more than singing. I pray that you've been seeing that this morning. 
but it definitely isn't less than singing. My preaching of the word, your hearts turned in joy towards God this morning. Our fellowshipping with one another before and after can all be worshipful to God, but singing is still a core element and will stay a core element of our gathering time because it foreshadows a beautiful reality that we all will walk into. No matter how bad your voice is today and whether or not you cringe at the idea of singing, we will all sing beautifully to our God and Savior one day. Revelation 5 says it this way, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. We are to worship God with our voice and with song. Even if it's just a melody in your heart or quietly alone in your shower, we are meant to sing and bring glory to God through our voices, the overflow of our affection and attention coming out verbally. And it's that idea of singing worship songs together that that begins to bring us to the end of this idea. Corporate worship, not just solitary individual worship, is part of God's goal. He wants to build a people for himself from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. Just as the love of God has overflowed out of the Trinity and has compelled God to create the world and us along with it, so too should our worship overflow that it might go outward to others, right? And we find that we worship from the love of God to the love of others, what, that's what starts that for us. It's our worship of God that compels us to engage with others outside of us. Because at the end of the day, this is true, that missions exist because worship doesn't. The whole reason we go out to those who aren't yet believers is because we want them to know the joy of worshiping our God, to find themselves brought into his joy for their joy that this whole truth might be true for them, both sides of the coin, internally and externally, because we know that we find in that our greatest joy. I pray this morning that you have felt both sides of that tension rising in you, both a tension of how it would look better in your actions as well as the heart and knowledge that would need to change, That, that our efforts would be combined with God's effective work in his Holy Spirit to rouse our worship to new heights, that we would see that worship is our response and attention, affections, and actions that rightly know, treasure, and joy, and are satisfied in God through Christ Jesus, and to realize that our worship is really springing forth from God's joy for our joy, and that we see internally that it looks like worshiping in truth, a worship that is rooted in essentials and that has joy, exults in the particularities And that comes from a deep abiding joy and trust in God. And that externally, it looks like worshiping where God has us, worshiping in our diversity, worshiping through singing and worshiping from love of God to love of others. Our worship of God not only grows from his Holy Spirit's love with, uh, not only grows from his Holy Spirit's love within us, compelling us towards worship continuously, but it also compels us outwardly as well. Our worship of God was never meant to keep us oriented only towards God, but for us to see others outside as well. That it's through that, that vision of God that we see them. As it's so often summarized in scripture and as in our, is it our mission statement, 
or to move from love of God and love of others. We find that the love of others must happen because missions exist, because worship doesn't. We are compelled outwardly through our worship of God. And that's how we come to the the joy of gathering and the joy of witnessing, which is our next two. It comes through our worship. You know, friends, God does not intend to be half-glorified. In fact, unfeeling knowledge falls short of worship as much as truthless, affectionate actions. They both fall short. We are complete people, and our God is in a more complete being than even us, and He wants us to worship Him completely. We're to love our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and all of our strength. We must worship God. That kind of must. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we must worship you. Would that become our reality daily? Would it be very real for us that it's, it's not the kind of must that says I get up on Sunday morning to check a box, to, to make sure I do the right thing, but rather, God, that it comes from a compulsion within us wrought and rooted in your joy for yourself that you have now brought us into through the joy of Jesus Christ. God, would it overflow in us, both to all of our internal knowing and joys, but also to the ways that we express express ourselves wherever you have us, Lord, whether it's in our jobs, in Boise or wherever you take us. Lord God, would it come through singing and would it come through our compulsion to love others that they might love you the same. God, thank you that you have brought us into relationship with yourself and you've given us a role. Lord, what a a joy that is. Would you let worship continuously rise from our lips? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.